Well, as I said on Friday, this morning we're going to be looking at the resurrection from Isaiah 53. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus was raised according to the Scriptures. And of course, at that time, Paul wasn't referring to 1 Corinthians, for example. Right? Or Philippians, or Romans, or whatever. When he says in in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ has been raised according to the Scriptures, he was talking about the Old Testament. And so we should expect to see the resurrection in the Old Testament. And in fact, that's exactly what we see in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we read a prophecy that the servant of the Lord will die. Look at verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, we see that he was cut off from the land of the living. This is the servant of God. Cut off. From the land of the living. In verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked. With the wicked is neither here nor there, as opposed in, in respect to the point I'm trying to make. The fact is that they made his grave. He was cut off from the land of the living, and they made his grave. This servant of God, this Messiah, Christ is just the Greek term for the Hebrew term, Messiah. And both of those terms mean anointed one, or the servant of the Lord who was anointed by God for a particular task. This is all the same person. This chapter, Isaiah 53, is a prophecy about the Messiah, or the Christ, who is Jesus. And the prophecy here includes the fact that he will die. He will be cut off from the land of the living. They will make his grave. We saw on Friday that His death was for us and our salvation. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's in verse 4. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Not merely by the man who hung Him there, but by God. Because our sin had incurred God's judgment. Our sin deserved punishment. We deserved to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. We deserved to bear our own griefs and to carry our own sorrows. Do you realize that we deserved to have our hands and feet pierced, so to speak? For our transgressions. We deserved to be crushed by God as Christ Jesus was for our own iniquities. We deserved to be chastised for our own sin. But in verse 5, the prophet tells us that upon him, that is the servant of the Lord, that is the Messiah, that is the Christ. Jesus, upon Him, was the chastisement. And that brought us peace. All we, like sheep, had gone astray. We had turned, everyone, to our own way. But the Lord laid on Him, the servant, the Messiah, The Christ, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The servant of the Lord died. Evil men killed him. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, we read this. This Jesus... You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is Peter preaching to the men of Israel on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus, who we're talking about today, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In Acts chapter 4, we read this. 
truly in this city, there were gathered together against God's holy servant Jesus, whom God had anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Evil men killed Jesus. He was cut off from the land of the living, Isaiah 53 and verse 8 tells us, and they made his grave. Yet, verse 10, what comes after that? What comes after they made his grave? Usually that's it. So and so was a good man. He did this and that in his lifetime. And now he has been cut off from the land of the living. There is never a yet after that, is there? What funeral have you ever been to where there's a yet after that? But in Isaiah 53, there's a yet. He was cut off from the land of the living, verse 8. Verse 9, they made his grave. But verse 10 starts like this, yet. Yet. And what we read after the yet is this. Yet, he shall prolong his days. That's a prophecy of the resurrection right there in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Cut off from the land of the living, laid low in a grave, yet he shall prolong his days. In other words, when his days are over, yet his days shall be prolonged. There's the resurrection right there in the Old Testament. Let's look a little bit deeper at this passage and see not only that the resurrection is prophesied in Isaiah 53, but what else we can learn about the resurrection from Isaiah 53. We're going to begin with this concept, the intentionality of God, both in the death of Jesus and in the resurrection. As I already showed you from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, evil men killed Jesus. Yet, we also read in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And this is in keeping also with Acts 2 and Acts 4, you know. Acts 2.23, if I read the whole verse, says this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, it wasn't just evil men that did it, but it was God that did it. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's definite plan that Jesus would die on the cross. And Acts chapter 4. Truly in this city they were gathered together. This is a prayer to God. Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, the cross was God's plan. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Who put him to grief? Not only Herod and Pontius Pilate and the evil men of Israel, but God has put him to grief. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 tells us. Again, Jesus didn't die sort of as a natural consequence, as I was saying on Friday, the way that if you touch a burner on a hot stove, your hand burns, and it's just, nobody's doing that to you, it's just natural cause and effect. Jesus didn't die like that. Jesus died a punishment bearing death. God was active in the death of Jesus, pouring out His wrath upon His Son. Pouring out the punishment that we deserved for our sins. On the cross, Jesus didn't just happen to die, He was there intentionally in order that He might be chastised to bring us peace. The cross 
was the intention of God. But listen. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Listen. Listen now to the whole verse. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. They made his grave. Right? They cut him off from the land of the living. They made his grave. Yet, it was God's will that he died. There's an implicit therefore. Therefore, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. You see that? Look at your Bibles. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is the logic of the passage. They made his grave with the wicked. And yet, his death wasn't merely their doing. It was part of God's plan. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Lord has put him to grief. There's an implicit therefore. Therefore, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. In other words, when that for which... God purposed that he should die is fulfilled. When God's purpose in the death of Christ is accomplished, when the reason that God put him there on the cross finds its fulfillment, then he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. It was God's plan, not only that Christ should die, but that Christ should be raised. That's the logic here of this passage. Jesus didn't just die by the intention of God. Jesus rose by the intention of God. There was a plan of God, you see. That the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer in order to make an offering for guilt, as this passage says. But the plan of God also included that when the offering for guilt had been made, the days of the servant should be prolonged. The days of the Messiah, the days of the Christ, should be prolonged. The whole gospel is part of God's plan. It's not like God made a half-baked plan and when Jesus died, God looked down and thought, well, I guess I better raise him. It was the plan from the beginning. You see? God planned that the offering for guilt required on behalf of those who were guilty should be offered by the servant. And that when the servant offered that offering for guilt, he should be raised. And he should see his offspring. Which brings us to our next point, which is the inevitability of the results of Jesus' death. The servant would be raised. The servant had no reason to fear that death would be the final word. For death and resurrection were both in the plan. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit conspired together, so to speak, in eternity past. With respect to a plan to save sinners. That the Messiah should come should in his death make an offering for guilt and should be raised and should see his offspring. Jesus spoke even before his death, not only about his death, but about his resurrection. And Jesus spoke before his death, not merely about the hypothetical salvation of sinners but about the accomplishment of the salvation of sinners 
the inevitable salvation of sinners. The inevitability flows from the intentionality. If God intended that the Messiah should die and make an offering for guilt, and that the Messiah should rise in order that sinners might be saved, could it fail to be that sinners would be saved? Could it be that after Isaiah utters this prophecy in Isaiah 53, that the servant of the Lord should see no offspring? Could it be that after Isaiah utters this prophecy in Isaiah 53, that the Lord refuses or fails to give the servant a portion? To give him spoil, as verse 12 talks about? Could it be that he should not actually make many to be accounted righteous, as verse 11 says? You see, if there was a plan, and if it was the plan not of a fallible or fickle man, and if it was the plan not of an impotent man who has not the resources and the strength and the fortitude to accomplish that which he intends to do, but if it was the plan of God that the servant should die making an offering for guilt, and then that he should be raised to see offspring, to make many to be accounted righteous, to receive a portion and to divide spoil. If it was the intention of God that that should be the case, it's also inevitable that that should be the case. And so Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Things like that. Sinner, understand Understand that you belong to God. Let me be more specific about that. You belong to Christ. Not because you ultimately, not ultimately because you gave yourself to Christ, but because God gave you to Christ in eternity past. Do you see that here in this passage? There was a plan. Jesus came to do something. Not just to make something a potentiality. Not just to make something a hypothetical possibility, but to do something. And when he rose, he saw his offspring. Well, when did he rise? In 1994, when you were converted? In 2007, when you were converted? You see, Jesus rose 2,000 years ago. But when He rose, He saw you. Christian. He saw His offspring. The language of intentionality is all through these final verses of Isaiah 53. God's not making it up as He goes. God's not winging it. God's not waking up each new morning to see what events transpired in this world and one Friday he woke up and saw that they crucified his son and so he thought about it for a couple days and decided to raise him and make it a possibility for you to give yourself to Christ and each new day he wakes up and sees who gives themselves to Christ you see that's not the way that it talks about it in Isaiah 53 in the way that it talks about it He's going to the cross for someone. And when he comes out of the tomb, he sees those whom he went to the cross for. Because of the intentionality of God in the death and in the resurrection of Christ, there is an inevitability to the salvation of sinners.
God came looking for us, as many people have said, and as I've said to you before, before we were ever looking for Him. You see, who was it that He bore the sin of? Who was it that He made intercession for, according to verse 12? Not the receptive, not the wise, not the relatively righteous, not the moral, not the cultural Christian, the transgressors, the transgressors. A plan was set in motion, Christian, to save you before you were ever looking for God. An offering for your guilt was made before you were made. You see? The Father wasn't convinced to love you by the work of the Son. The Son's work occurred because of the Father's love. You recall the famous words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now if He gave a Son, that means the person of the Trinity that we're talking about is the Father. The Father so loved the world that He gave His son. The father had his eyes on transgressors. The father had his eyes on those who needed an offering for guilt to be made. The father had his eyes on those who needed to be chastised for their sin. Who deserved to be pierced for their transgressions. Who deserved to be crushed for their iniquities. The Father had a plan to save those kinds of people. He loved us with an everlasting love. And so, Christ was sent into the world. God came looking for us before we were looking for Him. There was an intentionality to the death of Christ and there was an intentionality to the resurrection of Christ and there is an intentionality therefore with respect to the offspring the spoil who are the beneficiaries of Christ's death and resurrection the third aspect of the resurrection that we're going to see this morning is the blessedness The blessedness resulting from Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And implicitly, it was the will of the Lord to resurrect him. The will of the Lord, the end of verse 10 tells us, shall prosper in his hand. That is the servant's hand. The will of the Lord is fulfilled by the servant, by the Messiah. The blessedness of God is indicated to us in this passage, in this verse. The same way, except we may be sure to a greater extent, that God was pleased with His work of creation. So was He pleased in the fulfillment of His plan. It was the will of the Lord to create. And so God spoke and accomplished that which He intended to. And when all was said and done, 
God saw that it was good. We read several times with the capstone, and it was very good. God intended to save. God intended that Christ should die to make an offering for guilt, and that Christ should be raised. And when all was accomplished, when the will of the Lord had prospered in the Christ's hand, we must assume, we must infer, that as it was in Genesis chapter 1, so was it at this later stage of history. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was very good. That which was conceived in the inter-Trinitarian deliberations of eternity past was now accomplished in time and space by the servant of the Lord of whom Isaiah 53 speaks. The will of the Lord prospered in his hand and we may infer that God saw that it was very good. And then, out of the anguish of his soul, verse 11, he that is the servant of the Lord shall see and be satisfied. Christ is raised and sees the fruit of his labor. The work is done. If you've ever had a project that you've been working on, and you finish it, and you step back, behold the work of your hands, and you're satisfied. This must be something like the experience of the resurrected Christ. The offering is no longer yet to be made. He's no longer dreading that horrible experience of Calvary. No longer experiencing the foreboding of Gethsemane. If it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Those days are behind him. The work is done. It is finished. And out of the anguish of his soul, he sees and is satisfied. So the blessedness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Godhead, seeing His will prosper in the work of the Messiah's hand. The work of the blessedness of the Messiah Himself in seeing and in being satisfied with what has been accomplished. There's that song that's, I suspect, familiar to many of us in this room. Above all powers, above all... Yeah, you know it. Like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. All right. Maybe not above all. Maybe not above all. We're going to talk over the next couple of weeks about God's ultimate purpose in doing everything, which is for His glory. But God forbid that we should not be able to sing, You thought of me. When Christ Jesus rose from the dead, He saw His offspring. He saw and was satisfied. Christ Jesus has a tremendous love for His people. We must never do away with the forensic language of the atonement. That there were just demands and that Christ Jesus answered the just demands on our behalf. That He fulfilled the precepts of the law for us 
that He bore in Himself the penalty of the law for us. We can never do away with that legal language. Because it's integral to the Gospel. And yet, God forbid that we should only speak of the atonement in legal language. And fail to speak about the love of God. And the love of Christ Jesus. There on the cross. For us. And the desire that God has for us to be saved. The desire that God has for us to belong to Him. The desire that God has for us to be His people. In this passage we could ask, whose offspring are we? The his might refer to the Lord's. In other words, the servant shall see the Lord's offspring. He shall prolong his days. And this is the standard way of speaking about adoption in the Bible. The standard way is that Christ, the Son, has brought many sons to glory. That he is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's the standard way. And so we might understand this to say, the servant shall see the Lord's offspring. He shall prolong his days. It may also be a reference to Christ's divinity. You recall that back in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. We read that to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the Son who has consubstantial unity with the Father makes us his own children. It might also be a reference to the building of the family of God promised in the Abrahamic covenant. That in Christ Jesus, we Gentiles may become Abraham's children. And so in that sense, Jesus is a forefather on Abraham's family tree. Our forefather on Abraham's family tree. Just as the children of Israel are called by Israel's name, so we Christians are called by Christ's name, our forefather, and so belong to the family of God. In any case, whatever the exact meaning, God forbid that we should forget to talk about being sons, being daughters, being brothers. Being loved. This is some of the blessedness that is ours and some of the blessedness that is Christ's. He sees us and is satisfied. But that brings us very naturally to considering our own blessedness as a work of, or as a result of Christ's work, as a result of the servant's work in Isaiah 53. Of course, as verse 11 says, the many who he has made to be accounted righteous is us as Christians. If you're trusting in Christ Jesus, Isaiah 53 and verse 11 is referring to you. The righteous one, the Lord's servant, has made you to be accounted righteous. He has borne your iniquities. And as we talked about on Friday, as the spotless lamb has given you 
his clean, pure, spotless wool to be clothed in. This is a lens that we often look through to understand our blessedness as a result of the gospel. Justification. That God declares us righteous, not for our own merit, but for the merit of Christ Jesus, which is not developed in us or gradually produced in us by the operations of the Spirit, but is imputed to us, credited to us. The merit of Christ reckoned by God as if it was ours. We also see in this passage the offspring point that I just mentioned. Adoption is another lens that we can look through to understand the gospel. Not only are we justified, that forensic, legal language, but we become God's children. We enter the family of God through the gospel. I've already elaborated on that a bit, so let me move on from there to talk about this last one. We are called in this passage Christ's portion and Christ's spoil. This is the language of the spoil of war. The language of that which victors receive for their work in battle. This is not a lens that we're familiar with looking through to understand the gospel. When was the last time you heard a sermon about being the spoil of Christ's war on sin and death and hell? But here it is. The portion, the spoil, isn't something else. Jesus didn't go to the cross and be raised for diamonds or gold nuggets. The spoil is that which has been in view in the whole chapter. The people. The portion is that which is, has been in view in the whole chapter. The offspring. The sons. The daughters. The brothers. The sisters. But part of our blessedness is being the spoil of Christ's victory against sin and death and hell. Now this might make us a little uncomfortable at first. This harkens back to the Old Testament conquest of Canaan and the taking of brides from among those conquered. Taking people as spoil has been part and parcel of human warfare pretty much in every culture for most of human history. Kidnapping, enslaving, raping, marrying... The language used here is people as the spoil of war. And that might make us a little bit uncomfortable at face value. But consider this. Whether or not being taken as spoil is a curse or a blessing depends on who you're taken by and how they treat you. Ungodly and wicked nations rape, enslave, so on and so forth when they take people as spoil of war. They rip people away from their families and from their gods, which are no better 
than the families and the gods that they're introduced to in their new homes and in their new nation. In the conquest of Canaan, God permitted the people to take wives as spoil from the conquered peoples. And at first blush, it might seem not much different really than what's going on with the other nations and the practices of other nations. But I want you to consider a few things. Do we believe that the conquest of Canaan was just? That the people whom God commanded the Israelites to go in and conquer and to kill actually deserved to die? Or did God command something unjust? The answer has to be this. It was just. It also would have been just if God had commanded the Israelites to wipe out every nation on the face of the earth. It also would have been just if God had wiped out the Israelite nation from the face of the earth. The point is that those people in Canaan were marked for destruction. And they deserved the punishment that was being meted out to them in the conquest of Canaan. Consider now the question of religious pluralism. Were the gods of Canaan just as okay as the God of Israel? Were all of those deities on par with Yahweh? Again, we have to give the obvious biblical answer. No, they were not on par. Were the practices of the peoples in Canaan equal to the laws of God given to the nation of Israel? No. I'm not going to elaborate this morning, but you can go study ancient Near Eastern Uh, cultural, civic practices over and against the laws of God which were given to the nation of Israel. But one of the reasons that God gave His laws was to preserve His people from the rampant wickedness that was going on all around them. To demarcate them as a just, as a righteous, as a relatively good nation compared to the people around them. What we see is that if a woman was taken as a bride of war, she was taken from an ungodly, wicked culture and placed in one that had just laws given by God. She was spared death that she deserved and whatever life that she lived as an Israelite, would then be gracious. Better than she deserved. And she would be introduced to the one true God who was prepared, even in Old Testament times, to accept Gentiles as His own. We think about Rahab from Jericho, Naaman the Syrian. She had a chance in Israel as a bride of an Israelite to come to know the one true God. In all of these ways, you can see that it actually could be a blessed thing, not just to be taken as a bride in any war, by any people, but to be taken as a bride of war into the Israelite nation. Now consider this. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, we read this. When you go out to war against your enemies... And the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive. And you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife. 
Then you shall bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. Listen, God prevents the impulsive rape of beautiful women among the nations to whom he's sending them in war by commanding a month-long waiting period. And at the end of that month, if the Israelite man is prepared to treat her as a wife, he may take her as a wife. And if not, then she is to go free. She's not to be enslaved or treated poorly. She is to go free. Consider the difference in Israel over and against the practices of the wicked pagan nations. When we come back to Isaiah 53 with some of these concepts in our mind, and we think about what it means that Christ has taken us collectively... You know my pet peeve about referring to individuals as a bride of Christ or Jesus is my husband. But when you think about us collectively being taken as spoil in Christ's victory against sin and death and hell, we have been taken from being earmarked for certain death We've been taken from an existence in which we were enslaved to sin. We were taken from an existence which leads at best only to temporal fleeting happiness and eternal misery. But which actually in many cases includes not only eternal misery but even temporal misery. And we were brought into a relationship with Christ Jesus whereby he is compared to a groom and we are compared to a bride whom as Ephesians 5 tells us he loves and nourishes and cherishes when you were a Canaanite woman you were not loved as you now are having been taken as spoil in Christ's conquest of sin and death and hell. That metaphor takes a little bit of unpacking. But when you unpack it, you realize what a more, infinitely more blessed state it is to be numbered among the people of God, to be called the bride of Christ, rather than to be continually living in Canaan, outside of right relationship to the one true God, in a place where wickedness abounds and there are no righteous and just laws. To go from being in a place where you are used to being in a relationship where you are loved. What a blessed thing it is. Not only to be accounted righteous, that is justified, Not only to become a child of God, that is to be adopted, but to be married to Christ. That we may have fellowship, communion with the one who saw us and wanted us and privileged us to become his bride. What a wonderful thing it is to be the spoil that Christ takes in his victory over sin and death and hell. Unbelievers and believers alike, have you ever seen such love elsewhere as God sets before us in Isaiah 53? To be loved by one who, as we read, was has borne our griefs carried our sorrows, 
was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised in order that we may know peace, who had our iniquity laid on him, in order that, in order that, we may be accounted righteous, in order that we may become the children of God, in order, in fact, that we may become His bride. Have you ever seen love like that elsewhere? Nowhere. Nowhere else will you ever find love like that. So unbeliever, I would ask you, why stay away from Christ? Why keep at a distance from one who would love your soul like this? From one who would die and be raised for you in all of these respects? Come to Christ in faith, even today. And Christian, in view of these things, why would you live like stricken, smitten, and afflicted is the last word? Why would you live like no helper came to Christ at the cross? Why would you live simply eating and drinking as if tomorrow you die and that's it? Christian, be reminded of these glorious things. The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. The intentionality of God's plan. The inevitability of your salvation. The blessedness of God in His triunity in the Gospel. The blessedness of Christ, the Mediator, the Messiah. Seeing His offspring and being satisfied. And your blessedness, having been justified, adopted, and now privileged to be Christ's bride. Don't just eat and drink thinking that tomorrow you die. But live in view of the gospel. Live like, in fact, Christ has been raised. Which he was prophesied in Isaiah 53 to do. Which he, later in redemptive history, actually did. And live like all of the end results of that will, in fact, be accomplished and unfolded in due time, including his return, in which the fullness of all the things he won for us in his life and his death and his resurrection will be ours.